This is lecture number 29 on the Major Prophets by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 29, which is his Ezekiel lecture number 5. In Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, you have a description of a vision which Ezekiel receives. Something that is different here from previous visions is that Ezekiel has already had many visions, but previous to this, Ezekiel had visions that were explained to him. We looked at our last session at the vision of the dry bones, where he had this vision of dry bones coming to life and putting on flesh. But God says in Ezekiel chapter 37, 14, in context of that vision, quote, I'm going to raise up again the people of Israel and breathe a new life into them. So, at least you have an indication of what the vision is intended to depict. Earlier in the book, he had a vision of the wickedness of Jerusalem and the things going on in Jerusalem while he himself was in Babylon. But then the Lord says, I'm going to punish Jerusalem for their wickedness. I'm going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. But when you come to chapter 40 and following, you have this vision that's given as a unit from chapter 40 all the way through chapter 48. There is, however, no explanation supplied with it as to what it means. Of course, that's part of the reason for differences of interpretation of this section. But I think that's reason in itself to go slow about jumping to conclusions on exactly what its meaning is. We're going to look at some of the alternatives as we progress from here, discussing chapters 40 to 48. But notice on your outline, number one, under the heading, chapters 40 to 48, and this number one is the content of chapters 40 to 48. I have three subpoints under that. Chapters 40 to 43 is the description of the visionary temple. Chapters 44 to 46 is the description of worship in the visionary temple. And chapters 47 and 48 is the boundaries and divisions of the land in Ezekiel's vision. So I think the material divides pretty well into those three sections. There's a great deal of material here, and there's an awful lot of detail as you read through it. Let's look at A on your outline, first section, chapters 40 to 43. Every small feature in this visionary temple is described and measured. You see the way it begins in the first five verses. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, so we see 14 years after Jerusalem had fallen, Ezekiel continues and he says, On that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. So in the visionary situation, Ezekiel is brought to Israel. We read again, In visions of God he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. End quote. So here's a man with a measuring instrument. And the man said to me, that is to Ezekiel, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. 
Tell the house of Israel everything that you see. Well, what follows is this vision of the temple that is measured part by part by this man. Ezekiel continues, I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Quote. So, in verse 5, you have this reference to a measuring reed, six cubits long. Now, a cubit's length depends on whether it's the long or the short cubit. This is a cubit and a handbreadth, which would be about 21 inches. A long cubit is about 21 inches, and a short cubit is about 18 inches. This reed is six cubits long, and therefore it would be about ten and a half feet long. So apparently this wall was about ten and a half feet high and ten and a half feet wide that this man measures. But you see, as you go down further in verse 6, you read the following. Then he, the man, went to the gate facing east. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was one rod deep. In verse 8 we read, he measured the porch of the gate, and then he gives you the dimensions. Verse 10, the chambers of the gate were three on this side and three on that side. And in verse 11, we read that the man measured the breadth of the entrance of the gate. So you have a very detailed description. Now, people have gone through these details and diagrammed them out so that you have a picture of the structure of Ezekiel's temple. But remember the context. Ezekiel is coming to the land of Israel. He sees in a visionary sense, in a visionary context, the temple, and he measures out all the features of the structure inside and out. Remember, it's not a building that was in Israel in Ezekiel's day. It's something seen in a vision. Now, I think that suggests either that God was giving Ezekiel ideas in a symbolic form by means of this detailed vision of this temple, or it could mean that there will be at some time in the future a building of this size. Those, of course, are the two main alternative interpretations of this passage. That this is a vision of something that was to be in a literal sense someday, or that this is a symbolic picture of something for the future. When you get down to chapter 42 in this section, verses 15 to 20, you read, and now I'm reading from the King James Version. Now, when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, he brought me forth toward the gate whose prospect, that is, area, is towards the east, and measured it round about. He measured the east side with a measuring reed, five hundred reeds with the measuring reed round about. He measured the north side, five hundred reeds, with the measuring reed round about. He measured the south side, five hundred reeds with the measuring reed. He turned about to the west side and measured five hundred reeds with the measuring reed. He measured it by the four sides. It had a wall all about, five hundred reeds long and five hundred broad, to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. End quote. Now I read from the King James, but if you look at the NIV, that's chapter 42, verse 15, the NIV says, or the New International Version, and I'm quoting here, when he had finished measuring what was inside the temple area, he led me out by the east gate and measured the area all around. 
he measured the east side with a measuring rod. It was 500 cubits. Now, the NIV says 500 cubits instead of 500 reeds. There's a note here in the NIV, and that's in verse 16, and it says, see the Septuagint, verse 17. And then when you go to verse 17, it says, he measured by the north side, and it was 500 cubits. And the text note says, Hebrew, it says rods, and also in verses 18 and 19. So, the point of all this is that you have a textual problem with the term cubit or reed. What was used? Was it a reed that is six cubits long, or was it a cubit? So, it makes an enormous difference whether you're saying 500 cubits or 500 reeds, which would be about 3,000 cubits or 4,500 feet. Then in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 3, we read the following. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the inside of the temple. And he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. When they place their threshold next to my threshold, and their doorpost besides my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. End quote. So what he sees in the vision is the return of the glory of the Lord. We read, the glory of the God of Israel returned. He sees the return of the glory of the God of Israel to the temple. It comes through the east gate by which it had earlier departed. He has had a vision previously when he had seen all the wickedness going on in Jerusalem. This is chapter 10, verse 19 and following of Ezekiel. You read there in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, and this is verse 19, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. End quote. If you go down to chapter 11, verse 23, he says, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia and the vision given by the Spirit of God. That's the end of the quote. Earlier, he had seen a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem. Now Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem, and God says that I will live among them forever. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 10 and 12, says something, although it is cryptic, and I'll not settle the problem of interpretation there, but it says something about the purpose of the temple that Ezekiel had seen. You see, verses 10 to 12 of chapter 43 say, 
Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them, so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. End quote. It seems that the temple is an expression of the holiness of the Lord, and that the people are to look at the plan, and in this plan is some concept or idea of the holiness of the Lord, and they are prompted to measure the pattern. That's the way the King James translates the phrase there in the last phrase of verse 10, when it says, measure the pattern. The NIV says, let them consider the plan. It seems that in some way the people are to learn the way of holiness so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, as verse 10 tells us, by awareness of the details of the structure and the use of this visionary temple. Now, Ezekiel chapter 43 verse 13 and following speak of the altar. It describes the measurements of it. I don't think we need to go into the details of that at this point. That's down through the rest of the chapter. But, any questions before we go on? A question. Was there ever a temple that looked like the one described by Ezekiel? The answer. There was never a temple that existed, whether the original one or the rebuilding at the time of the return of the exile, or even Herod's additions, that never followed this particular plan we read in Ezekiel. On the other hand, there are some elements. If you go down to chapter 47... I think this is all one piece. You have this river that is flowing from the altar down towards the Dead Sea. This river gets deeper and deeper as it goes along. How do you do that? So there are some features that seem to go beyond possibility of construction. You don't construct a river. It's just there. Now, Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 13 to 27, describe the altar, and that brings us to the end of chapter 43, which is the description of the visionary temple and its various parts. If you look at any standard commentary, you'll find diagrams of what we've been discussing, but let us just say diagrams constructed from the description of the temple itself, and then of the larger temple area with the courtyards in the inner court, the outer court, the wall around it, the sanctuary itself, and the rear, they're all visualized. And you can see them in diagrams, as I have mentioned. Well, let's go on to a little b of the outline, the description of worship in the visionary temple. Again, I don't want to look at this in any careful detail, but just to get an idea at this point. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 1 to 31, you have remarks about the Levites and the priests and the prince. Notice the first four verses. I quote, then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. End quote. Now, it says of the eastern gate, uh, we just read, the prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. 
The prince is to enter by way of the portico of the gateway and go out the same way. Then we read that the man brought me, Ezekiel, by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. Ezekiel says, I looked and saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple of the Lord, and, he says, I fell face down. See, those first four verses speak about the closure of the east gate until this prince will come. And there are other references through this section to the prince. The question is, who is he? You might initially wonder, is this the Messiah? Is it Jesus Christ? But it seems clear when you read further that the prince cannot be the Messiah. Let's take a look at chapter 46, verse 2, when you read, quote, The prince is to enter from the outside through the portico of the gateway and stand by the gatepost. The priests are to sacrifice his burnt offering and his fellowship offerings. End quote. This prince apparently doesn't have priestly rights. It says the priests will sacrifice his burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And that's chapter 46, verse 2. In chapter 45, verse 22, it says, quote, On that day the prince is to provide a bull for the sin offering for himself and for all the people of the land. End quote. He, himself, the prince, needs to offer a sin offering. I continue quoting. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. If the prince makes a gift from his inheritance to one of his sons, it will also belong to his descendants. It is to be their property by inheritance. End quote. So, the prince has sons. Now, Charles Feinberg, a good commentary that he has written, uses the temple as a literal temple that they will build. He feels that the prince is a descendant of David who will represent the Messiah governmentally. Not the Messiah, you understand, but a representative of the government of the Messiah. Some other commentators suggest that the prince is David himself, King David of Israel. I think the identity of the prince is very difficult to come to a firm conclusion on. It seems that he functions in some way as a vice-regent of the Lord in certain functions. He has certain important functions, but he is certainly to be distinguished from the Messiah. Well, let's move ahead to Ezekiel chapter 44. Verses 5 to 9 say that no foreigners or aliens are to do menial work in the sanctuary. Verses 10 to 14, again of chapter 44, we find that the Levites are to function as keepers of the charge of the house. In verse 10 and following we read, The Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, and who wandered from me after their idols, must bear the consequences of their sin. They may serve in my sanctuary, having charge of the gates of the temple and serving in it. They may slaughter the burnt offerings and sacrifices for the people, and stand before the people and serve them. But because they served them in the presence of their idols, and made the house of Israel fall into sin, therefore I have sworn with uplifted hand that they must bear the consequences of their sin, declares the Sovereign Lord. They are not to come near to serve me as priests, or come near any of my holy things, or my most holy offerings. They must bear the shame of their detestable practices. Yet I will put them in charge of the duties of the temple and all the work that is to be done in it. End quote. 
So the Levites, who were responsible for much of the sinful decline in Israel, are here keepers in charge of the temple. They do menial tasks and are excluded from the higher priesthood function, which is given in verses 15 to 17 to priests in the line of Zadok. And verse 15 says, But the priests, who are Levites and descendants of Zadok, and who faithfully carried out the duties of my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me, are to come near to minister before me. Quote. Zadok had been faithful to David during Absalom's rebellion, and he had appointed Solomon king, and the descendants of Zadok's line will be the priests in this temple. Verses 28 to 31 of chapter 44 is provision for the sustenance of the priests, how they will be provided for through offerings and so forth. In chapters 45 to 46, you have descriptions of the offerings and sacrifices and holy days that are to be observed. I won't go through the details of that, but you have a detailed description of it. Let's go on in our outline to little c, chapters 47 to 48, which I've called the boundaries and divisions of the land in Ezekiel's vision. Let's begin with chapter 47, the first 12 verses, because this is the temple's river. I quote, The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle-deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee-deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water, and it was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, and now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Glaim, and there will be places for the spreading of nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. End quote. So, you have this interesting picture of this river. The waters begin at the altar of the temple, the visionary temple, and they go out from the temple. There's this man measuring the depth of the water as he goes eastward, and he goes a thousand cubits at a time, which is about 1,500 feet, and at first the water comes up to his ankle, and then 1,500 feet, 
Farther downstream, the water is to his knees. Another 1,500 feet, and it's up to his hips. Another 1,500 feet, and it's over his head. He has to swim in it. Now, what's interesting is that the growth of the river seems to be unexplained. It begins as this small stream out of the temple. But at about every quarter mile, or 1,500 feet, it gets deeper and deeper until it's a large, deep river. That's a rather strange phenomenon, wouldn't you say? There's no suggestion of tributaries coming in. It's just that the volume seems to increase the farther one goes downstream. So in some unexplained way, this water increases in depth the farther away it gets from the altar of the temple. Then, when you read a bit further on, verses 9 to 12, it says that there are trees on both sides of the river, and the water has a healing quality to it. Of course, you can ask, what's the point of this? How are we to understand this river? Is this to be taken literally or symbolically? Is this descriptive of physical change that will take place around Jerusalem? What is going to need to take place that would enable a phenomenon like this to occur? While the details about the growth and the depth of the river and the trees and the healing quality of the leaves, I think when you read this, you can't help but think of the similar thing, at least, but not identical, that you read in Revelation chapter 22, where the Apostle John, the writer of Revelation, is shown a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the land. Certainly the imagery is similar. So we might ask in Ezekiel, as in Revelation, is there something that is symbolically depicted by the flow of this river? Notice in Ezekiel, it's not a complete victory that the river accomplishes. In other words, the picture here is like the one you find elsewhere in the prophets, where it says that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. This isn't universal, however, because in this vision of Ezekiel, it says that we still have swamps remaining and marshes that will not be totally fresh, although they will be used for salt. That's verse 11. So not everything is going to be healed or made fresh. Now, as far as interpretation, let's hold off on that until we get to the end of this and try to come to some conclusions. But subsequent to that in chapter 47, you have descriptions of the boundaries of the land for the different tribes and for the land as a whole. And it's a rather remarkable description as far as boundaries are concerned. Now, this is taken from Alexander's commentary. We have come across Alexander many times before. This diagram from Alexander is pretty much what it will look like according to these boundaries in Ezekiel. That is, what the land will look like. You notice one thing about the boundaries extended at the one end. It is going way above Damascus. I'm sure that this kind of vision in the present political climate of the Middle East is not going to be helpful in solving disputes over there. But this is quite a radically different description of the boundaries of Israel than those of the original Canaan. Then it also describes provisions for the prince and for the priests and the Levites. You get boundaries for the territory of the prince, the priest's portion, the Levites, the sanctuary. But again, moving from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, the boundaries cut straight across. Straight across horizontally on the map. So that runs all the way through chapter 48. So in these nine chapters, 40 to 48, you have a picture starting with a picture of the temple, 
It saw a visionary. I emphasize that. This is not a real temple in Ezekiel's time. And then you have worship in the temple and all kinds of sacrifices that are being brought, a gate reserved for the prince that is kept closed until he comes, and then you have this great river that begins at the sanctuary and goes out. Finally, the vision of the land is divided by tribal allotments, but the divisions are far different than what you had under Joshua. But that brings us to a question of interpretation. What is this all about? Well, for that, we will have to wait until next time. That's the end of lecture number 29 on the major prophets and the end of the lecture of Robert Vinoy on Ezekiel, his fifth lecture on Ezekiel. Thank you.